All right, all right, all right. We are in the Gospel of Mark. We will be looking at chapter 10 from verses 35 to 45. And what's interesting about this is that uh, as we, if you've been following along, you'll remember me talking about how the book of Mark is mostly the consensus among scholars today is that the book of Mark was written before the other synoptic gospels. The synoptic gospels being Matthew, Mark and Luke, because uh, synoptic means together, like uh, syn- synthesizing or um, and so sin is together and optic is to be seen together. So Matthew, Mark and Luke are seen together. John, John's a bit of a weirdo, but Matthew, Mark and Luke, the, the narratives are similar. And the idea is that Mark was probably written first on the testimony of Peter. And then Matthew, when he wrote his gospel, we, uh, he probably used the gospel of Mark as the basis for his writings. So I think about 90% of the book of Mark can be reproduced uh, if you look in the gospel of Matthew and Luke. Uh, So Mark was the earliest writing. So when we read this, we're reading the earlier version of a story that I actually preached out of two and a half years ago in Matthew. And it's almost exactly the same. Like a a lot of the time they record similar events or they'll tweak something. And in this one, there's some small tweaking in this story as well that you'll see in a second. But largely the text is almost exactly the same. Uh, But I wanted to kind of look at it again because I thought that it was a really fantastic passage and an important message. So uh, if you have an incredibly good memory from two and a half years ago, I apologize. Um, But I suspect that most of you won't recall what I said then. Yes, that's, yes, I believe that. Yeah, it hurts. Uh, Okay, so uh, the passage is about uh, the the, the sons of Zebedee, uh, John and James, uh, when they have that little thing with Jesus and they're like, we want to be the greatest. And in, the other, in one of the other versions of this, I'm pretty sure it's the Matthew one, it's, it's the mother of James and John that come to Jesus and say, oh, make them, you know, make them great. Uh, but in this particular version, they do that themselves. Uh, so I'll, I'll read through the passage so that we have some idea what we're covering. It just says, Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. This is how like, my kids come to me sometimes. I'm going to ask you something and I need you to say yes. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. And they replied, let one of us sit at your right hand and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can they answered. And Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the 10 heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. 
John Calvin, when he writes about this uh, passage, he says, "Bright uh, the, the, the writing is a bright mirror of human vanity because it shows the proper and holy zeal that is often accompanied by ambition or some other vice of the flesh, so that though they who follow Christ have a different object in view from what they ought to have. I think it's, it's incredibly difficult, uh, and by all accounts in the first century and all throughout history, I suspect, to find truly humble leadership, to find people who have uh, not sought uh, power and might and glory uh, and, and in the leadership that they've taken. Immediately prior to this, pa- uh, this passage, though, Jesus has just explained to his disciples that he is about to um, be humiliated and condemned and executed and then ultimately rise from the dead. And they don't get it. He's talking about being humiliated and they're thinking he's going to raise up an army. He's talking about being executed and they are thinking maybe we can sit in glory with him without realizing that the one on his right and his left that is immediately in the future of Christ are the thieves hanging on crosses. Being on the right and left of Jesus is not uh, a great location to be for most of the time. They're caught up in their own story and their own experience, and they think this is an appropriate time to seek glory. And this is true, like I said, of all history. The idea of being great is something that people have aspired to, uh, except that it's almost universally the title of great has been applied to violent despots and warlords. Think about it. We have Alexander the Great. We have Genghis Khan, who was known as the Great Khan. We have Herod the Great. These are not characters whom we think of uh, when we think of peaceful men. For thousands of years, humanity has been defined by the greatness of the people who could crush their enemies. In the world, to me, to be great means to defeat those who oppose you. And even James and John, this was the worldview that they had as well. Uh, in, in the Gospel of Luke, it records these same brothers, after they had been somewhere that they weren't well received with Jesus, they said, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? See, the picture of, of, for them of the hero was Elijah, and Elijah called fire from heaven and destroyed the enemies of God. That was what it meant to be great. And they thought, oh, yes, finally, we have an opportunity. Let us call fire from heaven. I mean, it's cool when you heal a blind man, but how much cooler would it be if you smote a whole village? That's what heroes look like to them. And honestly, that's what our heroes look like today in all of our stories. Go to the movies. Our heroes are violent people who have no conscience. Our heroes are are shallow and they're not measured by their self-sacrifice or their character development. They're measured fundamentally by how violent and powerful they are and how they use violence to defeat their enemies. And even if we try to paint some kind of self-sacrifice brush over it, at the end of the day, the picture of a hero in our society is still one of violence and power over others. And at the time when James and John said, shall we call fire from heaven? It says, Jesus turned and rebuked them. Because this this is not Jesus' model for greatness. Jesus doesn't think being great is about having power over people that you can use to control them. I think in our modern era, era, perhaps we've redefined greatness to also include people who have lots of money and influence. So now it's not just the power to kill people, 
It's the power to manipulate and control people through, uh, through power and politics and fame, and wealth and influence. So it, it's no longer just great to be Pharaoh or great to be the king. It's great if you are a leading politician or a CEO or a famous actor or a famous musician or an elite sports person. This is how we achieve greatness in society. But greatness isn't just something that rich people have or want. The truth is, we all, inside of us, we have moments where we want that greatness. Uh, what's worse is we are hardwired to evaluate people and put them in a hierarchy when we see them. When, when new people come along or when we go into a new environment, we automatically and instinctively start to say, where do they fit in the hierarchy? Are they above or below me? And how should I react and treat them? Listen to the dialogue that people have when they meet new people. What do you do for a living? How much money do you earn? Do you have a title? And when, you know, like, are you a doctor? Are you a, like, what's the, the little thing that goes in front of your name or the little things that go after your name that make you great? What are your kids doing? Can we get greatness by living vicariously through our children? What does your spouse do? That's how I achieve greatness. My spouse has much more power over people than I do. I laugh and I joke, but it's a real issue. My identity is in some way wrapped up in just being successful. How are your kids going at school? How are you going at school? What are your grades? Because great people get high distinctions and average people get passes. Did you get that promotion? Do you have that new car or house or uh, thing or object? How are your relationships? Are you good looking? Are you smart? Where are your clothes from? All of these things are part of the dialogue that we have that determine where someone sits in the strata of our value system and how we perceive them to be great. In our head, there is a little voice, a constant kind of ringing that is telling us to, jank, to judge people and rank people according to the standards of the world. And when we win the ranking, we feel good. We feel powerful. We feel superior. We feel justified. And when we lose, maybe we feel angry or we feel depressed or we feel jealous. Maybe we fall into depression or maybe we are motivated because I want to do better and be greater and I will beat them next time. I wish it wasn't true, but this is especially uh, the case in churches. When you go to pastors' meetings, the great people get to sit in certain seats. Even now, even though Jesus is so clear about favoritism, it still happens at pastors' conferences. We care so much about our greatness and our glory. Jesus, let us sit on your right and on your left. Let me have the biggest church and the most influence and the best worship. I mean, we have the best worship. The most book sales, I mean, my books are just flying out. The invites to hang out with the other cool churches. I don't know, um, there's this guy, Preacher Sneaker, on, I think he's on Twitter or Instagram or one of those things. And he just posts photos of, of um, powerful, great preachers. And then he details for you how much their shoes cost and how much their jacket cost. And it's gross. It's gross. I mean, like, I'm all for people having hobbies. But if your hobby is to wear a different $2,000 pair of sneakers with your $20,000 jacket every week when you get up to preach about caring for the poor, you're a hypocrite. But we care about how we look. We care about our greatness. They pervade Christendom, and they have done since the very beginning. 
So then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, they came to him and they said, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. And they replied, Let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? Oh, we can, they answered. Now, the brothers have foolishly missed the point here because they think that he's talking about the cup of joy the cup of power, the cup of salvation. You see, in the Old Testament, it characterizes drinking from the cup in a positive way, but it also characterizes it as woe. It also characterizes it as suffering. And Jesus is saying, I am like the suffering servant. Later on, this, this, uh, there is an identification of Jesus with Isaiah 53, the suffering servant, but they think he's talking about the, the glory And ironically, the, um, James, the son of Zebedee, is known in history as James the Great, which is ironic, and it's just because he's the older of the two Jameses, or the taller of the two Jameses. It's just a way to distinguish between James the Great and James the Less. It's not a statement of their worth, but it is funny that he is remembered as James the Great. And to be fair, for all of his faults, after the martyrdom of Stephen, James the Great was the first of the apostles to be martyred. About a decade after the martyrdom of Stephen, Herod Agrippa was persecuting the church and they gathered the church leaders because they said, the leaders are the ones, if we can cut off the, the head, then we can get rid of the body. And, and as James was being taken to be martyred, he turned to the person who I assume had falsely accused him and he said, you should repent for the forgiveness of your sins and be saved today. And, and, and history tells us uh, that, that this man was so um, challenged by James's faith in this moment that he did repent. And he fell at his, on his knees before James and repented of his sins. And the two of them were beheaded together. And John, John the beloved, John um, who reclined in Jesus' lap, John, uh, this is the other son of Zebedee here, uh, whilst he wasn't martyred, he was the only one of the original apostles that didn't get martyred. Uh, they did try to boil him in a vat of oil and it didn't work. So they exiled him to the Isle of Patmos uh, and then he lived out his life. Eventually he moved back to the mainland of what is now Turkey, to Ephesus, and lived until his 90s. Uh, but he also bore the scars of his faith in Christ. Uh, so as much as I kind of poke fun of these guys, they did drink from the cup. And they were baptized in the same baptism. They finished well. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. What a terrible but beautiful prophecy to make for them. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those to whom they have been prepared there is no sitting alongside of Christ without drinking from his cup. And when the ten heard about this, they were indignant with James and John. And it wasn't like they were indignant because James and John, they were like, oh, we are better than you. We would never do that. They were indignant because they didn't ask first. They were indignant because they thought that Jesus had given them a prize and that they were going to miss out. They were indignant because these two guys weren't playing as part of the team uh, and they were cranky about that. So after this little ruckus, Jesus calls a team meeting. He gets them all together. 
And he says, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials. The word here, high officials, uh, is just a, a plural term. It's that, remember the word mega that we were looking at a couple of weeks ago? Megas, megoi, um, uh, megaloi. It, here it just means great ones. In its context, we think of it being high officials. They're high officials. They're great ones exercise authority over them but not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. You see, Jesus doesn't play to the cultural norms. Being great is what you want. And he says, no, that's not how you be great. Jesus, uh, again, and when he, at the end here, it talks about uh, offering himself as a ransom. It's, it's paralleling uh, some of the stuff in Isaiah 53. He's saying to be great is to suffer as a servant and as a slave. To be great is to take the lowest position, not the highest position. And in, in the context of what Jesus is saying in the first century here, to take that lowest position to be a slave or to be a servant, uh, actually the word servant there I think is diakonos, uh, which is where we get our word deacon from. Uh, and then later on, I think, he, does he say slave? Yeah, he says first must be slave of all. This is our word doulos, where we get uh, the word doula from for midwifery. You must be a, a deacon who serves, and you must be a slave who serves. These are completely countercultural for greatness. Now, I'm not saying that no one should lead. Someone has to lead, and someone needs to hold power. It's just that Jesus doesn't recognize leadership as greatness or power as greatness. Those are roles that have to be fulfilled in the broader society, even in the church. That's very good and reasonable. And I think that we should exercise uh, discernment in who we raise to leadership. And hopefully they will be people who are humble and kind and gentle and peaceful. Lovers, not fighters. But that's not how we determine greatness. Having the most power or prestige or influence or money or might is irrelevant to Jesus' definition of greatness. The New uh, Revised Standard Version translates this verse 42. I, I really like this translation for this verse. Uh, it says, You know that among you the Gentiles, who, those who you recognize as their leaders, lord it over them and their great ones. It's a more literal translation of that megas. Uh, their great ones are tyrants over them. This is what Jesus is saying. Don't be tyrannical. That's not what it is to be great. The, the Gentiles, and when a Jewish rabbi talks about Gentiles in the first century context, normally the rabbis would use the Gentiles as an example of all that is bad. So Jesus is saying, you know what the Gentiles are like. It's not good. They lord it over them. They are tyrannical towards the people who have to submit to them. They take advantage of people. They dominate them. They revel in their authority. And I don't think things have changed all that much. When you look at a lot of the world's leadership today, last time I preached this message was when Trump was uh, in, in office and he determined, great, what did he say? We need to start winning wars again. We need to, he thinks that's what it is to be great. We, we treat the, um, the rich billionaire despots who rule over people with their money and, and, and make all their wealth off the labor of others. And we think that they're heroes. We worship them. We follow every word that they have to say. But they're despots. They're not great. They're tyrants. 
we are told that purpose and happiness come from being great. If we could just be like that, if I had more power, if I had more money, if I had more influence, if I had more authority and success and wealth and achievement and title, if I just got promoted, if I just got the spouse that I wanted or the house that I wanted or the study that I needed, if I just achieved all my dreams, I would be great. I would be glorious. And Jesus says, no, to be great and to be glorious is to be a servant. It's to be a slave. Not so with you. Not so with you. Don't be like them. Don't, uh, don't look at them and think that's great. Don't look at them and desire that. Don't envy that. What you want is my cup, even though it's hard. What you want is my baptism, even though it's difficult. It's obvious when you read through the Gospels who Jesus thinks is great. Jesus thinks the woman with barely a few coins that she puts into, into the offering, that that woman is great. That, that widow is great. The good Samaritan, this man who is anonymous, who is uh, from a, the, the bad guy culture, the people we despise, but he serves someone and he loves someone and he cared for someone, that person is great. The centurion who comes on behalf of his servant, that man is great. And the, the woman who, who was um, the uh, Phoenician woman who came on behalf of her sick child and trusted in faith in Christ, that he could heal her, that woman is called great. These are the people Jesus thinks are great, the small, the low, the ones who petition for others, the ones who serve, the ones who give generously. They're the ones who are great. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. In the kingdom of God, your greatness is measured by how much you help. And that's what makes things great. Around here... The things that even make our gatherings great are the people who serve. CJ and, and uh, Toby this morning serving. Brooke out there serving every week without pay, often without thanks. Even worse, sometimes I come out and there's a little bit of mess and I get cranky about it. So not only does she not get thanked, she cops it from me. But she's what makes church great for the rest of us. It's the people who facilitate the worship that make it great for the rest of us. It's the people who bring snacks. That definitely makes things great. I'm not, my primary function on a Sunday in terms of building my own greatness is definitely the time spent behind the coffee machine, not the one spent behind a microphone. It's the service that makes this community great. It's the people who turn up with a trailer when you need to move house the people who volunteer to babysit when you just desperately need a break or you need to get something done. It's the people who make meals when someone is sick in our community. And there are some people that always just say, how can I serve? How can I help? How can I give? How can I be part of the restoration of something here that is broken? That is greatness. We become great when we drink from his cup. We become great when we are baptized in his baptism. We become great when we serve and when we sacrifice for others. Heavenly Father, may we define greatness by the humility of our heart and the kindness of our actions. I pray that we would, we would know Christ crucified and risen from the dead, that his greatness was in his sacrifice and his servant heart. I pray that we would have that inside of us and that we would put aside our fantasies and envies and jealousies and greeds and lusts for power and, and wealth uh, and, and esteem in the way that the world does greatness.
but instead we would lead humbly, that we would serve faithfully. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.